report is called Vancouver's Social Safety Net, Rebuilding the Broken. Global BC was the first to get the leaked details, and now there is some strong reaction. And late this morning, a response to that reaction from the Vancouver Police Department. Rob Shaw, business in Vancouver, called the report a good work of fiction, a fantasy as penned by the Vancouver Police Department. Some strong comments he made, and he made these comments on the Mike Smith Show. It seems to calculate $5 billion in what it calls the social safety net. And the inference in this is that this is money spent to help people in the downtown east side primarily with overdoses, with crime, with poverty. And when you pull the numbers apart, you end up with at least $2 billion of that is federal transfers. And when you go further down into the actual report, they break out what the federal transfers are. And they're primarily the old age security for seniors and the Canada pension plan, the child tax benefits, things that everybody is getting in Vancouver. They're not downtown east side social safety nets. That's Rob Shaw making his comments on the Mike Smith Show earlier today. Well, there are two sides to that, and one of the sides is going to be coming from Chief Constable of the Vancouver Police Department, Adam Palmer. Chief, thanks so much for uh, joining us. My pleasure, Bruce. Happy to be here. Well, happy to have you. You know, the headline figure much is being talked about this $5 billion mark. Uh, Is that true? Five billion dollars, or are you going to uh, kind of scale that back a bit? No, we're not. So I'll just give you a bit of context here. So this is like this whole issue surrounding, and I know everybody's pointing to the downtown east side, which is a big part of it. But this is an issue throughout all of Vancouver, and we have been talking about this really over the past dozen years, thirteen years, about uh, lack of coordination in the social service sector, and when we're dealing with complex issues like mental health, homelessness, and addiction. And lack of coordination, people working in silos and not providing the best outcomes for people that need it the most. And what was interesting about this um, way we were able to look at it this time, because this isn't the first report we've put out on this issue, is we were able to partner up with a uh, technology company who are experts in data analytics. And they had a methodology where they've worked with about 30 different cities across Canada, and they've been able to put some financials to the social safety net in various communities across Canada. And we wanted to broaden the conversation beyond anecdotal observations and put some numbers to it to help strengthen the conversation. See that you want to strengthen the conversation, put numbers to it, I get all that. But how does this report actually advance the conversation in terms of solutions? Well, it advances it really well because I think that, you know, it's not just VPD. Like, we did start talking about this back in 2009 with our Project Lockstep report. We've put out other reports over the years about uh, mental health and addiction. We did the Lost in Transition reports. We did our opioid report about um, needing treatment on demand in the city and across our province. And we're not afraid to step into, you know, these social issues that intersect with public safety because, You know, Bruce, I'll tell you, from our perspective, we are in a really good position that we're out there 24-7, 365, responding to hundreds of thousands of calls for service a year of people in crisis. And we know the back lanes. We know the buildings where the troubles are. We talk to people on the street. We talk to the service providers. We talk to residents. We talk to businesses. And actually, police are very uniquely positioned. And the other piece of it is that we're not a political entity, and we don't report directly to government. We have a separate board. So this allows us some ability and flexibility 
to just be straight up and call it how we see it and report on some of the things that we're seeing that aren't working and in, in that intersection between social issues and public safety. There, there's a lot that needs to be done. And, you know, the data, I'm sure that you're going to get some people that are going to, you know, try and nitpick pieces here and there, which I get that perspective. And, you know, the data does have to be solid. But you are going to be talking to Dr. Alina Turner later, and I know she is the expert on it, and she'll give you some of those details you want. But I don't think there's any of your listeners that would disagree that when they drive through the downtown east side at Maine and Hastings that they're going to say the system is working well because it's not. Chief, are you uh, disappointed with uh, our city? Um, I think the state of the city right now in certain parts of the city, we've definitely got some uh, very significant challenges that we need to address. I think that uh, we are heading in a good direction and that we've got a lot of opportunity here. And I think that, you know, the opportunity um, is right on our doorstep and let's let's take advantage of that. So we've got a new mayor coming in that was just sworn in two days ago. We've got a new premier that's going to be coming in next week. And I think it's a great opportunity to sit down and have some, you know, really thoughtful conversations on these issues. And we're not pointing fingers at anybody specifically. We're just saying, Let's come to the table and let's talk about this and let's come up with a better plan because the current state of affairs is not sustainable and Vancouver needs some help and we're willing to work with other service providers to do the best we can for the city, but this should not be police-led. The police are bringing this to the forefront because we have concerns, but we don't think police should be leading it, obviously, when we're talking about social issues. Ultimately, somebody else from government would have to take the lead on that. You know, Chief, uh, there are a lot of people that are frustrated and not because of the report. I mean, the report is what it is. It's not going to provide solutions. They're looking for solutions. Where are those solutions? What can we do besides, and everything I hear is talk, 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 talk. What can we do to actually get to some action so we're not seeing what we're seeing right now on the downtown east side? Yeah, sure. No, happy to give you a couple thoughts on that. So we did come up with four um calls to action that we're, you know, identifying a path forward. You know, one is we do want to get a, a steering committee going where we do actually have community partners in various levels of government working through these issues together. Um, but a big piece of that, Bruce, is having a centralized entity that can oversee and coordinate a lot of the social issues down there. Because right now, if I was to say to you or any of your listeners, who's in charge of the downtown east side, nobody would be able to tell me an answer to that question. I mean, certainly, you know, we're in charge of policing and law enforcement, but on all the social issues, you've got half a dozen provincial ministries, you've got at least four city departments, you've got tons of nonprofits and uh, many different organizations in the downtown east side and throughout the city that are providing service. But the coordination or lack of coordination and integration is uh, it's quite concerning and people working in silos. So, Let's see who we can get that will be in charge of the downtown east side. And I think that uh, really that will fall to the province more than anybody because a lot of those issues with mental health, housing, and addiction that you know, we talk about so often, they are provincial responsibilities. And whether it's you know, a, a Vancouver Plan 2.0 or you know, a provincial minister or deputy minister to sort of be a, you know, my term, but you know, commissioner of the downtown east side or whatever it is, but... We're, this is probably the most troubled neighborhood in Canada, and you're not going to find another neighborhood like it in Canada. And I think um, any of your listeners that have traveled, you can go to Toronto or Montreal or Edmonton or any of the big cities. They don't have anything like the downtown east side. Oh, and I would agree, Chief, but uh, I would go a step further. I took a walk through San Francisco two weeks ago, and it's one thing to compare this city 
Vancouver to other cities uh, in the country. But even American cities like San Francisco are not experiencing what we've experienced right now. Um, What cities do you look up to or can you get some sort of inspiration from that are getting it right? Yeah, well, I, I think, though, the thing you have to remember, too, like there are a number of cities that are doing, you know, a better job with this. But I think that we have to face the reality that Vancouver will always be a bit of an anomaly in Canada. And we have seen over the years that, you know, due to a number of reasons, one is our proximity to the, uh, you know, the ocean, climate. It is much milder here in Vancouver than other parts of the country. Political climate has been very uh, welcoming to people to come from all across the country. And we've seen a trend that we've seen not in other places in Canada, but we've seen actually, and you mentioned it down in the United States where, you know, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, uh, San Diego, Los Angeles, uh, you know, a movement west and a lot of social issues developing with homelessness, tent cities, and a lot of issues that are attracted to the west coast of North America. And we're seeing that here. And as, as I've said before, my counterparts in other cities across Canada do not see a bunch of homeless people from Vancouver on the streets of Toronto and Montreal and other places, whereas here we will see homeless people from across Canada coming to Vancouver. So Vancouver, and to a lesser extent, smaller microcosm Victoria, I think that we're taking more than our share um, of these social issues across the country, much like you see down the west coast of the United States. Chief, thank you for spending some time with us and uh, elaborating on the report that is out now. Thank you. My pleasure. Just before the break, we were talking with Chief Constable Adam Palmer of the Vancouver Police Department about that $5 billion social safety network spending in Vancouver, all part of the VPD's report. That number has been questioned, and it prompted a news conference uh, this morning after the report was leaked this week. Here's what uh, Chief Adam Palmer said about the spending. And despite... $1 million plus a day going to community and social issues in the downtown east side. There remains a gap with assistance for addiction recovery programs, offender rehabilitation services, and proactive programs to help victims of crime. We have a new mayor, new head of the Vancouver Police Board in Ken Sim, and his council dominated by members of his party, ABC. Not all members of Vancouver City Council are with that party. One of them is Pete Fry. Green Party member of the Vancouver City Council. We asked uh, Pete Fry if he managed to hear this morning what he needed to hear from the Vancouver Police Department. No. No, I was hoping to hear a, maybe a little bit more contrition, maybe a, a bit of an acknowledgement that the, the those numbers were grossly inflated and uh, that using the downtown east side as a literal backdrop to this report that obviously is talking about the entire region and the city of Vancouver and covers all sorts of things that have nothing to do with the downtown east side was was a misrepresentation. And I would have liked to have heard from from the VPD that that moving forward, we need to be working more collaboratively and and breaking down these silos. And I don't think that that was accomplished with uh, this press release. And I was disappointed. Five billion dollars is a uh, questionable figure at best. What do you make of that? Well, you know, obviously, you know, three billion of those five billion dollars are are you know, direct government grants, and that includes everything from unemployment to senior supports to social assistance and disability payments. Um, you know, it's got charities in there that have nothing to do with the downtown side. It has different foundations. Um, this, you know, is especially perplexing given that we saw the exact same methodology 
employed in in an Edmonton report by the same group uh, not two years ago, and that was roundly criticized. They came up with a $7.5 billion figure for Edmonton, and it was criticized at that time as being grossly misrepresentative of of what a social safety net is and, and how it was being weaponized to sort of promote a certain agenda. And so to see our own police department spend a considerable amount of money on the same kind of report with the same flawed methodology is, is greatly disappointing and I think really kind of inflammatory and does not help us move forward. You use the word weaponized. Do you think this may have been just sloppy research? I mean, I can't speak to the, the methodology. I'm, I'm, when I say weaponized, I, I feel more it's how it was leaked, how it was framed as a downtown east side issue, when in fact it's not. But using um, the $5 billion and, dollar figure. Sure. And I, th- I think the fact that it was leaked to the, the, the leader of the opposition, uh, the fact that it was, it was framed around a downtown east side thing, uh, those, those create a, like a political tension to this narrative that I think is unwelcome here. Um, and I think the the five billion dollars. I'm, I'm not. I wouldn't really necessarily comment that it's weaponized in the in the research methodology. I would more suggest that it's uh, flawed, uh, certainly in a way that I wouldn't uh, I, I wouldn't rationalize. And I, I can't um, I, I I can't validate it as an accurate representation of the quote unquote social safety net in Vancouver. Councillor Fry, to the best of your understanding, what is the purpose of this report? That's a great question, and I, I don't think I heard that uh, really articulated in the press conference today. My understanding is is that it, it, it's it's being framed as a as, as as a starting point for a conversation, but but I don't think this is a good starting point for a conversation. I think it actually really polarizes the conversation, and it kind of puts us back a step. And that's why it's so disappointing because we had an opportunity here to build trust. And obviously we have a, a new mayor and council here in Vancouver that were endorsed by the police union. And, you know, we have, um, a, a, you know, who have come in with some, some pretty significant commitments to uh, increase funding and uh, deployment of police officers to add new body cameras and stuff. These all come at a, at a price tag. So to have the day after civic inauguration to have the Vancouver police release a report leaked or otherwise uh, that, that, that highlights a, a and, and frames a sort of gross misbending of public resources um, sets sets a scenario potentially for like an austerity budget that that tries to slash some of the social services in favor of increased police funding and I, that worries me. Let me ask you this: Do you think this report was possibly a plan B if Canton Sim was not elected uh, mayor of Vancouver? That at least there'd be some backup to go uh, cap in hand and ask for more funding and resources. Yeah, potentially. I mean, I could see why it was not released before uh, before the election because this would have been disastrous for Ken Sim and his team. I think as as police endorsed uh, candidates, this would not have reflected well on them because I think as we're poking some pretty big holes in this argument, it would have it reflected poorly on them, and I, and I, and I think that would have done a disservice to to Mayor Sim and, and his team, who, who I have a great deal of respect for. Um, so maybe it was set up as a plan B. I know the report was authored in March, or received by, by VBD in March, and it is only just coming out now. So maybe Saner Heads had prevailed and thought maybe it was, was prudent not to put this out uh, at all. And maybe they thought that now that the dust has settled and there's nothing really to worry about as far as political fallout, they could release the report. I really couldn't couldn't speculate beyond that. You're a minority voice on council now. Um, What is the next step? What can you do uh, in light of this report? 
you know, all I can do is 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 continue to highlight some of these issues and and, and keep an eye on them and 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 speak truth to power as as we have things come forward that may or may not be kind of consistent with with I think what the larger understanding of of public safety and budgets and city governance are to the general public in Vancouver. So I'm going to continue to do my job and maybe work a little harder. Pete Fry, thanks for your time. All right, cheers. Have a great one. You know, it was no big red wave last night, despite what many people had anticipated. But there is a path toward change in Congress, as yesterday's results in the U.S. midterms, while many of them are still being figured out. For his part, Justin Trudeau says Canadians will work with whoever ends up in Congress. Canadians can know that we will continue to work constructively and productively with the U.S. government, uh, with the administration, uh, regardless of what happens uh, from one election to the next. Uh, It's important that we stay focused on the things that matter for Canadians, uh, keeping them safe, uh, making sure we're fighting inflation, making sure we're growing the economy in ways that are good for right now, but also uh, for years to come. We've always worked closely with the uh, Americans, and we will continue to. So what are the impacts for Canada from the midterms, if any? Stuart Prest is a political science professor at Quest University and joins us now. Professor, thanks for being with us. Good afternoon. It's my pleasure. Well, uh, when you look at the results from the midterms and where we're still going with those results uh, being figured out, what is foremost on the minds of Canadians looking south in terms of impacts from the midterms? Well, I think we're looking at a period of uncertainty in the U.S. where in the short term, it's going to take a little while even to figure out who has won the the election, where we're still counting ballots in some key uh, House races. And uh, we may not know who is actually in control of the Senate until December when there's a a runoff race seems likely to happen in, in Georgia. So. We're in a period of, of watching and waiting to see who ultimately emerges triumphant. And then even once we, we know that, we have to, to wait and see. Uh, let's say, for instance, the Republicans are managed to take back the House. Uh, that's going to lead to a certain kind of paralysis near, uh, in some respects in, in Washington, or at least tense negotiations over things like the, the budget and the debt ceiling uh, for, for the U.S. And so we really have to wait in Washington and see whether any kind of political direction emerges out of the country from from this elections, or is it just going to be two years of, of political uh, uh, gridlock? We always have some shared responsibilities on both sides of the border, things like uh, the environment, uh, things like trade issues. Uh, the Democrats and the Republicans uh, differ on so many of these things, but uh, is there one that you can actually say is better for Canada when it comes to control of Congress? Uh, it's tough to say. There, there are ways in which the the Democratic Party aligns well with Canadian uh, values or the values of a majority of Canadians. So, so in that sense, I think it, it's pretty clear that a Democratic Party would be one that most Canadians would be more comfortable with. But that it isn't across the board on all issues. The Democratic Party also tends to be quite protectionist when it comes to certain kinds of, of trade issues, and so we may be in a situation where Democrats Democratic Party is going to be uh, politically uh, valuable for Canadians who care about the, uh, the the state of a progressive agenda in the United States and uh, are perhaps concerned with regard to the ways in which elections themselves are being contested in the U.S. But but that may not be good for Canadian pocketbooks when it comes to maintaining a, a trade relations with with the U.S. 
Right. We're talking with Stuart Press, political science prof at Quest University. You know, one thing I was noticing uh, by the end of last night, uh, Stuart, is many of the 2020 election deniers didn't actually do all that well in the race for governor. And uh, we also have three governors being elected who are uh, LGBTQ. Uh, We're on a path towards maybe less extremism in some areas in the states. Did that come uh, through as a surprise or did you note that at all? Yeah, I think we saw uh, the emergence of uh, additional uh, new members of, of various electoral bodies from, from a younger generation and uh, from more diverse backgrounds. And so I think uh, underneath the, the sort of uh, stasis or, or uh, paralysis that we do see in the U.S. politics and that polarization between uh, d- Democrats and Republicans often built around the agenda of, say, Donald Trump and responses to that, we do see that the country continues to, to change and, and to, to transform. And, and I don't think that the politics... Uh, of today will will last forever. The country is going to continue to change demographically, and we're going to hear more and more from from those younger voices. And they're not going to be polarized in, in the same way as the, the 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 60, 70, and sometimes even 80 year olds who tend to have the the foremost offices in the country at the moment. One of the things that became clear with the Biden administration uh, was Keystone Pipeline would not be given uh, the green light. And that, of course, is a pipeline from uh, the Gulf Coast right up to our country and has an impact on our own economy. Uh, Do you think the midterms uh, have any impact on these major decisions? I don't think so in most cases. I think Keystone was mostly dead, uh, if not all dead, uh, prior to the midterms, and I think it continues to be mostly dead, if not all dead. That is a decision that without a change in in the presidency, uh, at the very least, uh, I don't think the the decision in the U.S. is going to be reversed. And and likewise, the U.S. stance on things like the Nexus program, which continues to be an irritant uh, between Canada and the United States, is not fully restored to to, uh, pre-COVID standing that that is going to continue to be uh, uh, something of a sticking point as well, as well as uh, issues regarding uh, by American provisions and so on. So I think in many of those those uh, bilateral issues, we're going to continue to see that while the relationship is, is complex and in many ways quite quite strong, and there are still going to be these flashpoints, and they're not going to be resolved simply because of the results here. Speaking of some of those bilateral con- um, issues, I guess. One that keeps on coming up, and you have to follow the bouncing ball on this one, is uh, daylight saving time. And we have uh, new governors and uh, new administrations, uh, possibly new directions. Are we any closer, do you think, to getting some sort of agreement on who even is responsible for making the decision to get rid of daylight saving time? Uh, that's that's a good way to put it. Uh, we, we we honestly, it, it's not even one uh, level of government's decision within within the United States. There are ways in which the the federal government uh, controls the the uh, the passage of time effectively in the, in the United States or the regulation of time. But uh, under certain circumstances, the states can can go in their own own direction. But but even when they they seem poised to do so, as, as for instance, Washington State uh, voted to 
to move to a permanent daylight savings time. They can't actually do that without federal approval. And I think it is going to remain something of a, a muddle until uh, either a, a, a bilateral consensus emerges in Washington. And this is an issue where it is possible that we may see some movement. The, the dividing lines, uh, those who are in favor of uh, uh, continuing uh, changing the clocks versus those who, who want to, to end the practice, they don't fall along uh, partisan lines. The, there are some businesses that are concerned about the effects of ending the change and and they may have the ears of some Democrats and some Republicans, but others who are favoring a a more uh, final uh, approach to time, uh, likewise have supporters in both parties. So so we have to continue to watch what unfolds, but but this may be an area where we actually see some movement simply because it doesn't fall into that kind of polarized divide that we see so much of American politics uh, falling into these days. Well, time will tell. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. Stuart Prest, uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Anytime. Okay, Salish Sea, Haida Gwaii. Those are a couple of name changes on the BC map in the last decade or so. But what about the actual name of our province, British Columbia? Is that the name that is culturally sensitive or as culturally sensitive as it could be? How do we feel about such questions? Well, often asking the tough ones, tough questions like these. Mario Canseco with the polling company Research Co. And Mario, you know, uh, that's got to be one of those ones that's going to generate some uh, some people saying, oh, it's gone a little too far. And others saying that, you know what? Great question. Um, first of all, where did this question come from? Well, it started last year, Bruce. We were getting uh, a lot of discussion about what should happen with the name of the province, everything that was related to the efforts uh, on reconciliation. And we decided to ask about whether we should change the name of the province back in 2021. The level of support was tepid at best. And when we asked it again this year, we see a significantly higher level of support uh, for doing away with the name British Columbia as far as the province. It's not a majority. I think that should be said. It's about a third of British Columbians who believe that we should continue to look into the possibility of adding something to the name that uh, features the uh, indigenous culture of the province. Uh, but uh, the numbers are trending in that direction when we compare it back when, when what we found back in 2021. What did you find in 2021? I mean, now we've got one in three people uh, saying, uh, yeah, maybe we should look at it. What was it back then? It was only 24% who believed that we should change the name of the province to acknowledge its indigenous heritage. It's up six points now. So it's definitely shifting that way. And part of what is happening is it's the younger generation that is more likely to believe that this is the right course of action. There's 50% of British Columbians between the ages of 18 to 34 who believe that we should continue to look into the option of changing the name of the province. The numbers are not that high when we look at people from Generation X or those who are over the age of 55. And what's fascinating to me is it's the younger generation that is more in tune with Indigenous issues, more likely to be supportive of efforts towards reconciliation, more likely to have learned about residential schools that is uh, more likely to believe that a 
change of the name of the province is something that should be considered seriously. Now, I find that interesting, and not just because uh, social justice issues are something that may be more aligned with the younger generation, or at least that is the wisdom that we've gone by for years. But um, I I find it interesting in that uh, they must be getting some sort of discussion about these issues from somewhere. Do we know uh, how they're talking about this? This must not be the first time they've heard of or thought about these things. No, you know, this is something that we've been looking into for the past three or four years. Uh, We asked a question related to when people learned about residential schools. And what is consistent across Canada and also across British Columbia is the younger generation is more likely to be in tune with what happened. We had a lot of people between the ages of 35 to 54 and significantly more over the age of 55 who didn't learn about residential schools when they were in the school system and who are suddenly waking up to the fact that all of this happened and they didn't know about it. So part of what we see here is the younger generation of British Columbians being more in tune with this and believing that this would be a gesture that would signify something that is more palatable when it comes to reconciliation. So it's definitely one of those issues where it's generational. Usually when we ask questions that are controversial, you see a little bit of a gender gap, you see a little bit of a political gap, maybe the NDP voter more supported than the BC Liberal voter. But on this particular issue, it's the youngest British Columbians who are saying this is what we should be considering and the older ones not being very convinced about it. That is also something I find interesting, that that is the demographic standout. It uh, goes right to the age. I'm looking uh, at Mario Canseco, uh, your research call summary, and um, one thing that I'm looking at is uh, just down in the... Uh, down below, almost like four paragraphs in. But I think it's important uh, when we talk about the geography and where the responses came from. Well, it says more than seven in 10 residents of Vancouver Island believe changing the name of the Queen Charlotte Islands. Remember that? Queen Charlotte Islands went to Haida Gwaii, right? Um, Do we find that there is something of a geographical divide when it comes to uh, those who would favor changing the name of British Columbia? The level of support is a little bit higher in the island. And I think this is also something that bears uh, additional consideration. Because when, when we had the moment when the Queen Charlotte Islands became Haida Gwaii, uh, there was a lot of concern. It wasn't something that the BC Liberal voter necessarily was supportive of. I remember a lot of pushback towards the government because they allow something like this to happen. And here we are 12 years later, and a majority of British Columbians believe that it was the right course of action. So we might be headed down the same path when it comes to the name of the province. You know, there's people out there who are very concerned about the fact that it has the word British in it. One in five British Columbians told us that they're not happy with that. And the same proportion, one in five, believe that we should have something that that acknowledges indigenous issues you know there's other provinces that have indigenous names we are one of the ones that don't have that and you know part of it is making that decision in the same way that the gordon campbell government decided to do it you know it wasn't particularly popular at the time but 12 years later a majority believed that it was the right course of action this is going to bring up some uh, some other questions and one that stands out in my mind 
is changing the name of British Columbia. Well, if you do that, you have to look at a couple cities. And two cities that stand out in my mind are Vancouver and Victoria. And I can't think of uh, bigger cities that have more of a colonial connection when it uh, (laughs) talks about, uh, you know, past history. Well, this is something that has been tried in other places. Uh, we, we, we renamed some of the streets that we have, particularly in Richmond and in Vancouver and in Victoria. Uh, in Toronto, we saw a, a significant debate related to the name of Ryerson University, which, which is now called Toronto Metropolitan. So it's bound to generate a lot of debate. But once that those decisions are made, um, people seem to be very supportive of them. And Ultimately, I think this is about being able to couple some of these gestures with something that is meaningful to the indigenous communities. I think this is something that we've seen in our research for the past couple of years. It's not only about those gestures that make sense. It's also about ensuring that every Canadian is treated equally. Absolutely. Mario Canseco, president of Research Co. Stay with us, Mario. I'm curious to hear what people have to say, uh, and hopefully we'll get a few calls from different areas. But uh, this question after the break, we want to hear from you. Would you be okay with changing the name of our province? And with that, what other names could you think of for British Columbia alternatives? Maybe names that would be a little bit more culturally sensitive, reflect uh, the indigenous heritage of our province. Give us a call. And it's Bruce Claggett in for Jazz this afternoon. We're talking with Mario Canseco, president of Research Co., about this question about a third of British Columbians actually favor changing the name of our province away from British Columbia. Uh, Mario, uh, you know, this one also reminds me of slogans. And one of the slogans uh, that they talked about was the one in New Westminster calling it the Royal City. Uh, You haven't asked any questions about those type of things, have you? Not yet. It's an interesting dilemma because we do see a situation where our relationship with everything related to the monarchy has been changing drastically over the past few years. Uh, We asked about the monarchy every year, but we also asked after the passing of uh, Queen Elizabeth II. And what we see is uh, that the younger generation is not particularly in tune with what the monarchy represents. And, you know, that is something that we should also take into consideration. It's not as if a majority of Canadians believe that we should become a republic necessarily, but the way in which we feel about the monarchy, particularly when it comes to pride, has certainly declined over the past few years. Okay, let's ask uh, some of your thoughts on it. 604-280-9898, Graham in Abbotsford. Would you favor uh, changing the name of British Columbia to something else? Uh, It wouldn't matter to me, but the thing is, it it was originally going to be called British Caledonia. And Caledonia is a Scottish term, the Victorian court did not want a Scottish name, and since they looked at the river in the uh, uh, Washington and Oregon area called Columbia, and that was the Columbia District. So as, as of 1858, with the proclamation of the colony of British Columbia, that was the name chosen by the crown, i.e. Queen Victoria at the time. It's interesting, and thanks for the call, Graham. We're reminded that there is always a little bit of history and, uh, dare I say, some politics involved in uh, naming. Isn't that uh, so, Mario? Graham is absolutely right. You know, it's one of those things where 
Um, we see a lot of animosity towards everything that was named after Christopher Columbus south of the Rio Grande. You know, Columbus Day celebrations in Latin America are always infused with problems because they look at Columbus as this figure that essentially brought in colonization to the land. And when we ask British Colombians about the name, they're more likely to be troubled by the fact that it doesn't have an indigenous acknowledgement or that it is British, but only 8% are upset with the fact that it is Colombia. So it's not as if we're paying a lot of attention to what Columbus meant, certainly not as much as what they are in Latin America. Before the break, we were talking about uh, a geographical kind of uh, difference, maybe. Uh, more people in uh, on Vancouver Island might be in favor of uh, changing the name. Well, Dev is on Vancouver Island. Uh, Dev, what do you think? Look, uh, I'm a South Asian heritage. My family came here early 1900s. This is British Columbia. It always has been. It always will be. History is history. And here we are today. And uh, is that history uh, uh, full, is the greatest? No. But that's why we have history. There are good things and there are bad things. Dev, uh, I'm going to uh, ask you an unpopular question, but you can take it. Um, how old are you? I am in the mid-50s. Mid-50s. Do you have kids? Yes. And what do you think your kids would say to this? Mm-hmm. Uh, just guessing. Well, I mean, I, I think that they're proud of uh, who they are and and they know their history and and you know and and I don't think they would have a problem changing the name of something my friends is not going to change the history okay it's going to be there forever but yeah, I appreciate proud. the phone call it is uh it well it's also a part of history I I suppose appreciate the phone call Glenn in Maple Ridge what do you think hey Bruce well first and foremost if I heard your uh, statistician uh correctly it was one in five British Columbia's favor uh changing the name well one in five is nowhere near a majority so i think it's a no-brainer to start there uh the other thing uh, you mentioned vancouver victoria should okay if we're going to do british columbia vancouver victoria should also change what about prince george prince rupert it goes on and on we're not going to erase history uh if you're upset that you live in a place called british columbia well then you don't move here you, what, what is you know, Bruce? What is next? Do we do we turn in all the books? Do we have a book amnesty? You know, anything written before 1990? Uh, uh, book amnesty? You turn your books in and burn them because we didn't like what happened in the past. Every country on this planet has a, has a has a dark past, and all we can do is move on and embrace the future and try to make it better. Glenn, Main thanks for the call. Think? No, I do appreciate that. And uh, that's part of the reason why I threw out those two names, Vancouver and Victoria. And Glenn makes a good point uh, that you have a whole bunch of princes in there in uh, British Columbia and the list would go on. But Mario, also uh, for clarification, what was the number of British Columbians that would be okay? With, uh, with 31%, yeah, 31%. 31%. So it's, it's, it's almost a third. So uh, it's, it's a little yeah. bit more than one in five. Uh, but still, you know, this is, this is part of what the debate represents. You know, is, is this a situation where you choose specific names and you keep them? Or would you go in a different direction? I, I think one of the examples that we have right now is in the United States. There are so many American states that have indigenous names. There are so many Canadian provinces that have indigenous names. And we haven't had the opportunity to have that type of debate, at least in a very serious way, 
about whether this is the right course of action, but I can understand how uh, the, the idea of turning this into a slippery slope where you're going to be renaming everything is not something that is palatable to many British Columbians. No, I no, indeed. understand that. Let's see if we can uh, get one last uh, one in there. John from a city named after Captain Vancouver. Uh, John, what do you think? Well, uh, I'm just wondering, like, are we to uh, change the names? Like, for instance, uh, New Brunswick. Uh, There must be some kind of a connection uh, with some royalty there. Well, New Brunswick and thanks for the call, uh, John. Uh, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, which is New Scotland. I mean, if there is anything that could possibly be more questionable, that would be it, wouldn't it it not, uh, Mario? It would. You know, a part of the complication is we are one of the only two provinces that is essentially reduced to an acronym, BC and BEI. We never see New Brunswick referred to as NB. We never see Nova Scotia referred to NSS. Manitoba and Saskatchewan have four syllables, and we pronounce them all when we talk about them. So part of it is also what does the name represent? Are we okay with let's say, a new scout out of Toronto defining this province with just two letters. I think you know, that's or, part of the argument. Uh, the other one I uh, would kind of think of, as you say that, is could we find out uh, if there's a name that still keeps BC but has two different words? Something to think about. Mario Kinsenko, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. My pleasure, Bruce, anytime. Lots of talk about this one, the Vancouver Police Department's audit report. It's called Vancouver's Social Safety Net, Rebuilding the Broken. And the audit uses a figure $5 billion, talking about the cost of the social safety net. And for that, well, no real solutions. In fact, earlier on this show, we had Chief Constable Adam Palmer pointing out what we already see, and that is the situation's reflected on the downtown east side in particular, are getting a whole lot worse, and there's nothing to really even compare it to in this country. So what about this report? Yes, it was leaked. Global BC got a copy of it. And uh, now the Vancouver Police Department is coming out and talking about the numbers and trying to provide a little bit more context, especially that $5 billion number. Well, Dr. Alina Turner is the co-president and co-founder of Help Seeker Technologies. That is the Alberta technology company that uh, has been responsible for the report. Put it together. And Help Seeker Technologies, by the website, uh, talks about itself as transformative social change through data and analytics. Well, Dr. Turner is joining us now, and thanks so much for spending a little bit of time with this report. Uh, Reactions since its leak, is that a little bit surprising to you, doctor? Well, um, in some some respects, uh, we were uh, definitely expecting um, folks to be talking about it. And in in some ways, we also put this information um, on paper so that people would start talking about it. So in in some ways, you know, in some respects, it's a, it's a good thing that the conversation's happening. And uh, sure, we would have liked to, uh, to have done it when it was a little bit more developed with the community uh, consultation phase. But uh, better to take the first step than not to take that first step at all. Okay, so let's take a look at this. What is the actual purpose of the report? 
And mm-hmm. how does that purpose really connect with any sort of solutions for areas like the downtown east side? Yeah, you betcha. So nothing that you can't uh, analyze uh, uh, can really be fixed, right? So our first purpose was to really take a, an in-depth look at what the spending was to uh, to give folks a better understanding of the resources um, that were available in the Vancouver community. And um, while I know the um, one neighborhood is always comes to mind when it's um, when we talk about social issues. Social issues are not bounded to one neighborhood, and they don't look the same in every neighborhood. So um, when we think about the social safety net and its purpose in preventative measures, and for instance, preventing youth homelessness, we know that happens much much. Um, um, earlier in life and the type of social supports that young people need while they're still in their homes are very different than what somebody uh, experiencing entrenched homelessness and uh, uh, deep mental health and addictions challenges would um, experience in the downtown east side. So I really don't want people to walk away from this to say, well, we, we should only be talking about one neighborhood. We should be talking about the kind of social infrastructure we need to build to prevent these challenges in future generations and and think about that from a holistic perspective as well. So the purpose of the report was to to get that conversation going and start to map the financial flows. One of the things that you'll see in the report is um, quite a bit of, you know, this is what we know so far. This is the data that we have today. We need more. Um, so one way to measure the success of this is to, to see, will we have new data sets emerge that say, hey, you actually missed a whole uh, tranche of, of the social safety net that, and we know we did. We, For instance, I talked about how charity, charitable spending um, is recorded by the Canada Revenue Agency, and it's a fantastic uh, resource for, uh, for communities to do their social infrastructure planning using data. But unfortunately, that data set only represents uh, folks that are registered charities. So we don't know much about the nonprofit sector as a whole and what a wonderful contribution that they make to the social safety net as well. Um, the other piece that I found surprising in the coverage today is the, the and of course, it's a big number, $5 billion. Um, what I think people should also be talking about is the, what makes up that $5 billion uh, and what's, uh, what's the right mix. Of that five billion. So, um, from a preventative perspective uh, versus uh, emergency crisis interventions, do we have the right mix uh, for the right target populations in place? And if we don't, uh, then maybe that's the opportunity to have a conversation about right-sizing the social safety net. But you can't right-size if you don't even know what, what you're looking at. So, step one: start inventorying uh, what we know. And that was the purpose of, of this um, attempt to, to have that conversation with, uh, with some data. Okay, you mentioned it. Uh, I didn't. But uh, the $5 billion and how we get to that number uh, includes things like transfer payments, does it not? Yeah, absolutely. So Canada's social safety net is one of the hallmarks of um, our welfare state. It's one of the things that Canadians are, are and should be very proud of. As, and as a refugee to this country, it's one of the things that um, made this country uh, the, the place to be, right, to, the ideal place to immigrate to. Um, so absolutely. The but that's the Canada Pension Plan, Old Age Security, Employment Insurance, Child exactly. Tax Benefits. Uh, yeah. Those are not going necessarily to people struggling under the social safety net. Uh, many people listening to this right now are receiving that money. So how does absolutely. that connect to that the problem exactly. on the downtown east side? 
Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what the social safety net is for, is when folks are in their old age, is that there is a social safety net there to keep them from uh, deep poverty when they're no longer working. The social safety net includes unemployment insurance, again, a hallmark of the welfare state that uh, was put in place much uh, before our generation. What's interesting, though, and one of the things that folks forget is the social safety net is not just the direct government payments to individuals. It's also made up of service delivery functions that are filled by the uh, public service, by nonprofits, and by charities. So we're challenging the um, traditional definition of the social safety net being only those pension payments that you mentioned. We're saying it's actually much, much uh, more complex than that, and it's really the coordination of what goes directly to individuals, uh, those programs as well as the programs that are delivering services and sometimes benefits directly as well uh, because folks don't only get direct benefits from government. There's other programs that uh, provide subsidies uh, through Housing First programming uh, and rent subsidies is, is another example of direct payment. Doctor, with all due respect, uh, you talk about uh, this title, uh, Rebuilding the Broken. What's broken in here? Well, I think, uh, and, and by all means, if we don't think it's broken, then, then we can ignore the conversation and move on. If we look around this community and we can have conversations with our neighbors, our families, our businesses, our, uh, our citizens, and, and say, yeah, this is the best we can do in this community, then, then by all means, uh, shelve it like every, like every other report that has uh, you know, tried to bring a new conversation to the table. But if we think we can do better... And if we think that uh, data can um, unearth different conversations, then I think this is a, a good opportunity to to see what we might uh, uncover. As what we conversations this. do we want to unearth? We're talking about $5 billion. Do we want to talk about uh, the cost of these federal transfer payments and whether they're effective when we start mentioning things like uh, the Canada Pension Plan? How is that connected to some of the social problems that we're seeing on the downtown east side? Very much connected, absolutely connected. So um, I think that the COVID benefit program is a really great example of how impactful some of these income benefits can be when they're um, implemented systematically. So do we have control over uh, income transfer payments um, as a society? We absolutely do. Those are choices we make as society. So these are our resources that we collectively decide how we um, expend. If we decide as a community that income support benefits, for instance, are below the poverty threshold, and therefore we also, I think, can uh, agree that poverty is directly linked to experiences of homelessness as well. So if the ability to afford your rent is is connected to these income transfer payments, and if those income transfer payments are not adequate, to the high cost of rent, and that leads to homelessness, then I think it's an absolutely fair discussion that we should be looking at the whole picture to see how we might prevent it. In fact, one of the most oft-cited policy recommendations that the nonprofit sector that I've been proud to be a part of for the last 20 years has made is to increase or index disability payments as well as social assistance to ensure that people are not exposed to these vulnerabilities. Dr. Alina Turner, uh, thank you so much. I I just want to ask one question. Did you uh, talk with any of the groups on the downtown east side when you put this report together? Our phase of the report was to do exactly what I mentioned, which is to look at the public uh, inventory of data. That was the first phase for us to get us a baseline inventory, and then that gives us a bit of a um, 
a list of the organizations that we would need to talk to. As and that data came from where? Uh, public sources that everybody is, is welcome to take a look at that are listed in the report. First and foremost, Canada Revenue Agency. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Alina Turner. You betcha. Thinking back and remembering a fateful day in July, back when, well, let's look at July 8 on the calendar. In fact, when Roger's service right across the country ended up in, uh, well, in a not-so-good position. In fact, cell phone service went down for hours for millions of Canadians. And uh, it wasn't just the cell phone service. We found out how quickly we rely on our telecoms for things such as, oh, I don't know, using your debit card, your charge card. Yeah, in many cases, that went down too. It's such an interconnected and powerful way of living Well, Rogers in their Q3 report is now out with an indication of how much it's going to refund some of the customers in total. And that number is still growing to talk a little bit about uh, that outage and uh, the Q3 customer credit old number is John Beeler. He's a Vancouver based technology expert and co-host of Get Connected on CKNW. Get connected on Saturday and Sunday mornings on the Chorus Radio Network. John, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. So we're uh, looking at uh, those customer credits for Rogers, uh, not just in the millions, not in the tens of millions, but how much when all is said and done? It's funny. I've been trying to figure out what the actual amount that this cost people and their customers versus what Rogers is actually going to be spending on credits because they're, they've earmarked 150 million for the credits. Um, but I've heard from a lot of people that they're not actually getting very much. And when you consider the fact that the average person was out for hours, if not a whole day of the service, not just the fact of not being able to take a phone call, but like you said, all the other implications, you know, your dinner plans are ruined because you don't have any way of paying for that dinner or whatever event you were going to or buying gas or all those different things that might all be reliant on that service that was on the Rogers network. There's a lot of unknown costs that are really going to be hard for Rogers to quantify because some of these costs are incurred by people that aren't even their customers. So what is, let's just talk about the customer credit, because you're right, uh, that's just the bill. But what is a customer credit? Well, I think it depends on how much you pay uh, per per month for your service. But the, the originally it was going to be a two-day credit. So two days of your service would be credited back to you. So depending on your plan, that would be a certain amount. And then it was uh, increased to five days worth of credit. But that's just on the Rogers network. There's also their sub-brand, FIO. And one of my colleagues, he only got a $2 credit for that whole day outage, which is kind of ridiculous. Yeah, and you know, it's uh, $2 when I think about that. Uh, I'm also reminded of people that ended up in, uh, you know, your local 7-Eleven going up to uh, pay for an item that they may have purchased. And guess what? Uh, they don't have cash on them because who carries cash? And now they have to go over to 
an ATM to take out money if that ATM is working and isn't part of this Rogers outage. They're paying that service charge on taking out maybe 20 bucks for their super big gulp. And uh, that type of thing can never be refunded, can it? No, no. And we, we heard a lot of stories from different uh, restaurants, for example, that were out tens of thousands of dollars of business that day because they couldn't have their customers pay for whatever they were getting. Where are we going here? John, I know you take a look at uh, technology all the time, but uh, are we looking in the next five or 10 years of being so reliant on any Canadian telecom, whether it's Rogers or Bell or Shaw or anything like that, uh, that this type of thing can happen? Or are there going to be new technologies that can actually replace the way that we do things? Well, I think it's it's going to be a difficult thing. I think certain companies will have redundant networks. They they will you know have their uh, services on a system that will fail over to somebody else. We've also heard after the sort of the aftermath of this outage that some of the other uh, providers will help pick up the slack on certain core things like you know emergency response, uh, telephone networks, those types of things, but. There's still going to be a ton of like small businesses that can't afford to have two cell plans or two internet plans for their point of sale systems, and you know that's the least of their problems right now. And so it's going to be interesting to see how Rogers can uh, restore the faith to their customers and clients that their system and network is robust enough to handle this again. Uh, We've also heard that they're going to be making a redundant network and separating out at a large cost to them uh, the the cellular from all of the other types of uh, internet internet networking that would sort of be the cause for things like the interact system to go down and having those all separate, which, you know, it's cheaper for them to have it all as one, but then, of course, that's your main failure point. So I, I think it's going to be tough to say, but I think, you know, we're going to be seeing more outages of a large scale that's going to affect certain things because we are so reliant on all of these types of technologies for our day-to-day stuff, whether it's, you know, paying for gas, buying our lunch, uh, using our cars that have, you know, navigation systems in them, those kinds of things, like all kinds of different places where this technology exists and does fail. Eventually, everything will fail at some point. John Beeler, thanks so much. Appreciate your time. Great to be here. Good talking to you, Bruce. Okay, that's John Beeler, Vancouver-based technology expert, also co-host of Get Connected. Get Connected is heard right here on CKNW and the Chorus Radio Network on Saturday and Sunday mornings. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.